exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Last week, I felt guilty because the sermon was supposed to be from verse 16 all the way to verse 29. And in the midst of preparation, I said, we got to split it in two because sermon's going to be an hour long. And I thought to myself, how am I going to preach on just five verses for this next section? And the more and more I dived into these deep truths, I realized we could spend the rest of 2021 covering these verses. But instead, we'll spend the next 35 minutes and I'll give it my best shot. Last week we saw that the Pharisees were upset with Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath. Doing any kind of work on the Sabbath warranted the death penalty. And if you look at verse 17, it says, But Jesus answered them. That phrase may not mean much to us, but that one word, answered, is very unusual because the only time that that word in the original language is used is in a courtroom defense. Those living in the first century who would have read John's gospel would read verse 17 and think, oh, Jesus is giving a legal defense. And he very much is. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't defend himself by calling out the Pharisees' legalistic, man-made rules. He defends himself by claiming to be equal with God. And last week we saw that Jesus is equal and one with the Father in His nature, in His works, His power, His judgment, His honor, and His truth. And this morning we're going to see Jesus continue to give His legal defense. He's going to continue to argue that He is equal with the Father, especially in His power to give life and in His power to judge. And so with that being said, let's pray and then we'll we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, We wish to see Jesus this morning. Enable us to see him in all his glory. Through your word, give us insight to understand his words. By the help of your spirit's power, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Faith without works is a dead faith. J.D. Greer is a pastor in North Carolina, and he wrote this little yellow book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And in it, he tells the story about one time when he was at a local basketball court, and he started a pickup game with a guy he's seen there a few times. This guy was quite a character. He cursed like a sailor and constantly bragged about how many girls um, he was having relations with. And as J.D. Greer played this man in basketball, he saw this as an opportunity to share his faith and to talk to him about Jesus, so he began to tell him his story. He began to share how he became a Christian, and three sentences into his story, the man stopped him, grabbed the ball, and said, Dude, are you trying to witness to me? And surprised he even knew the term witness, Greer said, Uh, well, yes. The man replied, That's awesome. No one's tried to witness to me in a long time, but don't worry about me. I went to youth camp when I was 13, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I went to youth group every week. I did the true love waits commitment things. I memorized Bible verses. I went on mission trips. I even led other friends to Jesus. About two years after that, however, I discovered sex. And I didn't like the idea of God telling me who or I couldn't, who I could or could not have sex with. So I decided to put God on hold for a while. And after some time, I just quit believing in him altogether. I'm a happy atheist now. But wait for it. And the guy says, But here's what's awesome. The church I grew up in was Baptist, and they taught eternal security. 
And that means once saved, always saved, right? That means that my salvation at age 13 still holds, even though I don't believe in God anymore. Once saved, always saved, right? Pastor, that means that even if you're right and God exists and Jesus is the only way, I'm safe. So either way, it works out great for me. If I'm right, then I haven't wasted my life curbing my lifestyle because of a fairy tale. And if you're right, well, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was 13 and I'm good to go. Okay, it's your shot. (laughs) What do you say to a guy like this? Is it really true that you can say a prayer once and even live your life as a Christian for a period of time, but then it doesn't matter after that? If Jesus has paid it all on the cross, we've sung about, and we've sung about his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, does that mean that your works don't matter, that your lifestyle does not matter? If we're saved by grace, why can't you just believe once, get your fire insurance, and then move on with your life? Stop wasting your time and your money in a church and do what you actually want to do. And those questions usually get answered one of two ways. The first way is to say, well, Jesus forgives you, but at the end of the day, your salvation depends on you living a good life. The problem with that is the Bible. In Galatians 5.4, it says, if anyone is trying to make themselves right with God by keeping the law, they're actually cut off from Christ and they've fallen from grace. Trying to earn your way to heaven, trying to earn your salvation by your good deeds is not just wrong. It cuts you off from any hope of forgiveness. Then on the other side, some will say, your works don't save you, so the only important thing is for you to believe in Jesus. And the problem with that kind of thinking is that it's totally foreign to the Bible. There is not a category in the scriptures, in the New Testament, for someone who has Jesus as their Savior, but not their Lord. It just does not exist. I think these answers are two extremes. They're not the right answers. One extreme says your works have everything to do with your salvation. The other one says your works have nothing to do with your salvation. So how do we find the right balance? And more importantly, how do we understand the biblical view between the relationship between grace and works? Between our salvation and what we believe and what we do? And this stuff is important because in this passage before us, Jesus is going to give us insights into the afterlife and how to get there. And if we don't understand the proper role that our good deeds play in our salvation, we're not getting to heaven. This is absolutely essential, not just for you to know, but for you to know so well that you can clearly communicate it to others. In this passage, we have life and death before us. You see, my prayer this morning is that you can have a true view of both faith and works, of faith and grace. So not only can you have eternal life, but so that you can tell others how to have eternal life. Because in John 5, verses 25 through 29, Jesus reveals three aspects of his resurrection power. Jesus reveals three aspects of his resurrection power. Jesus reveals that he resurrects the spiritually dead in verse 25. Jesus reveals that he receives the power to resurrect from the Father in verses 26 through 27. And Jesus reveals that he will resurrect all who are physically dead in verses 28 through 29. Jesus reveals that He will resurrect the spiritually dead, that he receives his power to resurrect from the Father, and he will resurrect all who are physically dead. But first, Jesus resurrects 
the spiritually dead. Look with me to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus starts off by saying, amen, amen, or in our translations, truly, truly. When we end our prayers by saying, amen, what we're actually saying is, I believe that this prayer will not only be heard, but answered by God. Amen? So when Jesus begins a statement by saying, amen, amen, or truly, truly, he's saying this thing is especially true. Usually he's introducing a new concept that his hearers have not heard before. And it also means he's about to tell them something that is utterly unbelievable to their ears. So here is the unbelievable thing. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now don't confuse the hour Jesus is talking about here with the hour of the cross. Jesus talked about the hour to come before in this book and usually he's referring to the hour of his death and his suffering. But here he's not speaking about death. He's speaking about resurrection from death. But which resurrection is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the resurrection of Lazarus that's going to come in chapter 11? Is he talking about his own resurrection when he's going to defeat death himself? Is he talking about the resurrection of the dead that's supposed to happen at the end of all? I don't think Jesus is talking about any of these resurrections in verse 25. I think Jesus is speaking about spiritual resurrection, not physical re- resurrection. And he's speaking about being born again, not being raised bodily. He's speaking about spiritual resurrection. Here's why I think that. If you look back at verse 24, what does it say? It says, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, you have eternal life and you have passed from death to life. Anytime someone believes and trusts and has real and living faith in Jesus, they are resurrected. Even though they've been walking around their whole life talking, living spiritually, they're dead. We're all born spiritually dead and in desperate need of resurrection. Ephesians 2 says it this way. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. We like to minimize our sins and act like they're no big deal. But not only do our sins put us in a state of judgment, our sins also put us into a state of spiritual blindness and deadness. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I've heard people compare salvation to a man drowning. They say, we're all sinners. And they say, we're all drowning in the ocean until God threw us a life raft. But it's still up to us to grab the life raft and pull ourselves in. And that's not the biblical picture of salvation. The biblical picture is that we are dead at the bottom of the sea. So how do we go from spiritual deadness to spiritual life? Well, how does a person get resurrected? It's simple. You need a miracle. You and I weren't drowning until God came along. We were dead. You don't need God to throw you a life raft because dead men can't grab anything. You need God to dive out from the boat and to find your lifeless body on the ocean floor. And you need him to find that rotten corpse that you are. And you need him to breathe life into your lungs and to be raised from the dead. And verse 25 is telling us that by the voice of the Son of God, the spiritually dead have passed from death to life. 
Because Jesus is one with the Father. And when God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus was creating. Remember how God created in Genesis 1? By the power of His spoken word. In Genesis 1, God speaks and it simply is. He speaks and it is so. And here in verse 25, this is what Jesus is saying. Just like in Genesis when God said, let there be light. So when I speak to the hearts of men, light and life are created. This phenomenon is called the effectual call of God. When God calls men and they answer. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he wrote, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. As Christians, we generally call all to believe. We call all men everywhere to repent and to trust in the good news of Jesus. But generally, when we call to others to hear the good news, it's perceived as foolishness and a stumbling block, mostly rejected. But in 1 Corinthians, it seems like Paul is arguing that something happens when the call of God goes out. Those who are called, when the voice of Jesus goes out, the gospel is no longer foolishness. The dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and it's no longer a stumbling block. Instead, the gospel is the power and the wisdom of God. And the time for Christ to call sinners out of darkness and into light is coming and is now here. Bishop J.C. Ryle commented on verse 25 by saying, These words are fulfilled at this very day. In every instance of true conversion, whether any men or women among ourselves awaken to a sense of their soul's value and become alive to God, the words are made good before our eyes. It is Christ who has spoken to their hearts by His Spirit. It is the dead hearing Christ's voice and living. Listen, Christian, it is a miracle for anyone to be converted. Whether they've been in church their entire lives or they have never heard the gospel. Every single time a person comes to faith in Jesus, it is the miraculous act of an almighty sovereign God who is taking out their heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, causing them to live and breathe for the first time. You understand the grace in this? The gift of salvation that God gives to men? When the voice of Christ speak, dead men walk and they breathe and they see the glory of Jesus. And this is the miracle that God has done in your heart if you are a Christian. It may not have felt as dramatic as Lazarus coming out of the tomb, but it was no less of a miracle. You may have never prayed a prayer, walked down an altar, or gotten baptized, but if God has given you true faith and led you to trust in Jesus for forgiveness, you have heard the voice of the Son of God, and you have passed from death to life. Amen? This is the power of the voice of the Son of God. But how does this carpenter's son from Nazareth have the power to call dead people to life? You see, Jesus resurrects the spiritually dead because he receives that power to resurrect from the Father. Look with me to verses 26 through 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We go back to the original question of this passage. What right does Jesus have to heal 
on the Sabbath? What, what gives Jesus the power to heal or the right to make himself out to be equal with God? And the simple answer is his relationship to the Father. And verses, 20, verses 26 and 27, we have two of the deepest verses in all of Holy Scripture. We see two truths on display. Jesus is with God and he is God. Does that sound familiar to anyone? They all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel where he tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here Jesus clearly describes himself as God. He tells us that in the same way that the father has life in himself, the son has life in himself. The son doesn't just help distribute life like a mailman. The father has life in himself, and in the same way the Son has life and gives it to whom he will. The same way the Father has authority to judge the world, Jesus has that authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Remember, Son of Man doesn't simply mean Jesus is human. It's a reference to the book of Daniel. Back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel wrote about the Son of Man who would come to judge the world and then receive worship from all the nations. It's this end-time figure. And here Jesus uses that title to inform us that he is the God of the universe who judges and gives life. But in these verses, we also see a distinction here. We see a distinction between Jesus and the Father. Verse 26 says that Jesus was granted to have life by the Father. Verse 27 says that the Father has given authority to the Son. The Father was not granted life nor given authority, but Jesus was. There is a distinction between the persons of the Trinity, even though there are only one God and one essence. But that raises the question, when was Jesus given life? When was he granted the authority to judge? And the short answer is, from all eternity. There was never a time when Jesus did not have life and did not have authority. He has been receiving it from all of eternity from the Father. And you may be sitting here thinking, okay, why does any of these matter? I get it. These are are heavy, weighty, difficult things when we ponder the deep mysteries of the Trinity. You may be sitting here thinking, I believe in the Trinity. I understand Jesus is one with God, but he's distinct from the Father. I get it. Move on. But you've got to remember, our entire salvation clings on these truths. Our hope for the afterlife, the forgiveness of our sins, the gospel truth hangs on the truth of the Trinity. The gospel is simply the Trinity in action. The Father loves the world and he sends his Son. The Son takes on flesh and dies the death of a sinner and absorbs the wrath of the Father. And then the Son sends the Spirit, his voice sending his Spirit to open our eyes and to lead us into truth. A God who is not Trinity could not have saved you, but we worship the triune God of the universe, and He is in the business of saving sinners. Amen? Amen. But because God is Trinity, Jesus has the authority to judge and the power to resurrect. And one day He's going to display that power for all to see. And verses 28 through 29 describe that day. See, not only does Jesus receive the power to resurrect, the spiritually dead, but also the physically dead. And one day he will resurrect all who are physically dead. Look with me to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. 
Jesus starts verse 28 by saying, do not marvel. And I just have to say, are you kidding me? Don't marvel. You raised the spiritually dead. You're the judge of all the earth. You have life in yourself like the father. Are you kidding me? Don't marvel. The Pharisees are probably having the same reaction I'm having. So Jesus is telling them, you, you get prepared for what is coming next. We haven't even gotten to the most unbelievable part. Jesus makes a clear transition from spiritual life to physical life. Back in verse 25, the hour is coming and now here. But in verse 28, Jesus is speaking entirely about a future event, an hour to come. And he even clarifies by saying, all who are in the tombs. Let that sink in for a moment. All who are in the tombs. And verse 29 implies that it's not just the righteous. It's not just the saved. It is all who are in the tombs. Some estimates say that a hundred billion human beings have lived on this earth and died already since the beginning of humanity. And Jesus is going to call all of them out of their graves. Doesn't matter how far back or how recently, Jesus is going to raise them. Jesus will raise Abel from the dead and he will raise Cain. Jesus will resurrect King Saul and King David. He will raise Nebuchadnezzar and Napoleon. He will raise Michelangelo and Michael Jackson. He will raise George Washington and John F. Kennedy. He will raise Julius Caesar and Judas Iscariot. He will raise Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. He will raise Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler. And if you die between now and then, he will raise you. Despite the amount of decomposition and decay and time, when Jesus speaks, molecules rearrange and the dead are raised. To the delight of the righteous and the dread of the wicked, not a single soul has been lost to the sands of time. When Christ calls out with his voice on the last day, they will all come out. The Apostle Paul speaks about this moment in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and he wrote, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Paul did not specify whose voice it was that was calling from heaven. But it appears to me that Jesus is telling us that it is his voice that calls the dead. Think about the power of the word and the voice of Christ here. Hebrews 1 verse 3 describes the power of his word this way. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. Every moment of every day, Christ is sustaining the universe by his voice. He's speaking the universe into existence at every moment. And one day he will rebuild it by his voice. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave... He called, Lazarus, come out. Some theologians have said that if Jesus had not called Lazarus by name, the whole graveyard would have gotten up as well. But let's be clear. This resurrection does not mean all who have ever lived will be saved. We'll go back to verse 28. We'll read 28 and 29 together. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. For those who are raised in the church, it feels obvious to us. Of course, the righteous are going to be raised. Of course, those who do good will be raised. But those who have done evil raised, why are they given new bodies and called out of their tombs? Because those bodies aren't raised for the purpose of eternal joy, but eternal 
torment. Those who do evil are given indestructible bodies that can never be eradicated so that the torment and the judgment that will endure will never end. So when Jesus describes hell in in the horrible fashion that it's described, he, he calls it a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's the image of decomposition that never ends and burning fire that never stops consuming. And remember, these are not my words. These are hard truths, but they're the words of Jesus. Those who have done good will rise to life, and those who have done evil will rise to judgment. And the agony and the horrors of hell can only be compared to the joys and the glories of heaven. Both are indescribable. But in verse 29, we get back to the question I asked in the very beginning. What do our works have to do with our salvation? Do our works save us? Are we saved through faith in Jesus alone? Or is it some kind of mix between the two? If we take verse 29 and we rip it out of the book of John, and we just look at it on a note, it seems as if we are saved by our works. But if that's what this is saying, we're all doomed. John actually wrote about what's called the second death in the book of Revelation. He wrote in Revelation 21, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. I know you're probably not a sorcerer in this room, but most of us will fit into at least a couple of those categories. If you've ever loved something more than you've loved God, then you are an idolater. If you've engaged in sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage, you're a sexually immoral person. Jesus said, even if you hate someone in your heart, you committed murder of the heart. And let's be honest, we've all told more lies than we can count. We tell so many lies that we're surprised when we read Revelation 21 that liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Lying is so second nature to us, but to the God of all truth, lying is treason. And I'll be honest, I'm not up here because I have kept these and that I've been, I'm guilty of all the categories we have just gone over. And if I got what I deserved, it would be the lake of fire because God is good and he will judge those who have done evil. But the good news of Jesus is this. Christ came here and never once lied. He never hated in his heart. He never was immoral in any way. But he went to the cross as the sinless sacrifice for sinners like you and I. He drank the hell that we just read about on the cross. He took the wrath of God on the cross. So that all who would believe, all who trust in his sacrifice would pass from death to life. Whosoever believes has eternal life. No works, no conditions. Only faith in Jesus can get us to glory. So why does it say here in verse 29 that those who do good are raised to eternal life? Because the spiritual resurrection that Jesus gives in verse 25 produces a changed life that is marked by good deeds. Good deeds are not the root of salvation, but they are the guaranteed fruit of salvation. Good works are the products of a true and living faith, not the prerequisites. Good works are the evidences of a true and living faith, so much so that those who have a living faith will be marked by good deeds that lead to the resurrection of life. Jesus will resurrect all those who have physically died. And now the question is this. Is your life marked by doing good or doing evil? 
Doing good does not save you, but a living faith will produce a life that does good. My prayer this morning was that you could have a true view of both faith and work so that you can not only have eternal life, so that you can tell others how to have eternal life. Because in John 5, Jesus revealed three aspects of his resurrection power. He revealed that he resurrects the spiritually dead, that he receives the power to resurrect from the Father, and that he will resurrect all who are physically dead. So what is your life marked by? Is your life marked by a living faith that produces good works? Or is your faith lifeless? Is your faith the kind of faith that doesn't produce anything? Faith without works is a dead faith. So what do we do about it? How are we to live in light of these truths? With these stark realities of eternal judgment versus eternal life, how are we to live? Well, I've got two pastoral charges for you. Two ways that you can embrace all of the aspects of Jesus' resurrection power. First pastoral charge. Embrace your identity in Christ. Embrace your identity in Christ. For all those who are in Christ, 2 Corinthians says, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. True Christians are not sinless. Far from it. But true Christians are new creature, uh, creatures with new desires. And eventually those new desires will develop into good works. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military generals who ever lived, conquered almost the entire known world with his vast army. One night during a campaign, he couldn't sleep and left his tent to walk around the campgrounds. As he was walking, he came across a soldier asleep on guard duty. A serious offense. The penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was, in some cases, instant death. The commanding officer sometimes poured kerosene on the sleeping soldier and lit it in that moment. The soldier began to wake up as Alexander the Great approached him. Recognizing who was standing in front of him, the young man feared for his life. Do you know what the penalty is for falling asleep on guard? Alexander the Great asked the soldier. Yes, sir. The soldier responded in a quivering voice. Soldier, what's your name? Demanded Alexander the Great. Alexander, sir. Alexander repeated the question. What is your name? My name is Alexander, sir. The soldier repeated. A third time and more loudly, Alexander the Great asked, What is your name? And a third time the soldier meekly said, My name is Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great then looked the soldier straight in the eye and said, Soldier, with great intensity, Either change your name or change your conduct. And so for the person who calls themselves a Christian, but their lives are like everyone else in the world, like everyone else around them, either change your name or change your conduct. It may be appropriate to ask at a point whether or not your faith is true faith. For some of you, you are Christians, but you've become so nearsighted and blind that you've lost sight of Jesus and his gospel. But for others, it may be because you have never been truly born again to begin with. And if you're worried that it might, you might not be born again, you might not be truly saved, I'd encourage you to come talk to me or to read that little yellow book called Stop Asking Jesus in Your Heart. It's all about how to know whether or not you're truly saved. We've got about three copies out. It's in the library. Just let me know. It's a really quick read. You can have it, return it back. But this is something you need to wrestle with. It takes time to realize and, and um, 
Let me say that, that even if you're the holiest saint there ever was, there's something that we all need to do in response to John 5. Second pastoral charge. Behold the glory of Jesus. Behold the glory of Jesus. If you're living a life that, life that is not marked by good works, the solution is not to work harder and to try to earn your way to heaven. The solution is to run to the cross, to run to Jesus for forgiveness. Behold him on the cross. Behold his sacrifice. See his love displayed as he laid down his life for idolaters and murderers and liars like you and I. Trust in who he is and what he has done and all your sins will be taken away as far as the east is from the west. And for those who are believers in fact struggling whether or not you are saved, 2 Peter 1 tells us, make every effort to supplement your your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. For any believer who's lacking in these qualities, Peter's solution was not for you to work harder to earn your forgiveness. No, he calls us to remember Christ and to behold his sacrifice, which has already forgiven those who believe. Behold his glory so that you may produce good works. Behold his resurrection power. Behold the fact that he opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. Behold the mystery and the glory of the Holy Trinity. Behold the power of Christ and his authority to judge This is the Christian life, to behold Christ and to stand in awe in His presence. That's why He's the main event of heaven. The resurrection of life is not only a resurrection of healing and joy and peace. It's a resurrection of enjoying the presence of Jesus. You guys know that I like it when a congregation talks back to me. There's nothing in the Bible about it. I was just raised in a very stiff religious tradition. There was no raising the hands. There was no talking back. And whenever I encountered a church that talked back, I just thought it was a lot of fun. And I enjoyed that. And as a preacher, I've enjoyed hearing the responses. And if you go to a Southern Gospel church, it's pretty common not just to hear amen. But people will throw in a hallelujah or praise the Lord or sometimes just preach. But let me tell you about my favorite thing they say in Southern Gospel churches. My favorite thing to hear if you're in a church is this. Take your watch off, preacher. Take your watch off. Because when someone says take your watch off, they're saying the sermon is so good that they do not care about the time. They don't want it to end. So don't look at your watch, preacher. Take it off. Just keep going. And when we get to heaven and we see the face of Jesus and we behold his glory, we will collectively say as the people of God and the presence of God, take your watch off, preacher. And with every day getting better than the one before, we'll behold his glory for all of eternity as we take off our watches and just stare. Those are the charges. Embrace your identity in Christ and behold his glory. Salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything. The call is to surrender all to Jesus. Surrender your sin. Surrender your pain. Surrender your plan. Surrender your all. Because in the words of Jim Elliot. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.